What's up, everybody? My name is Grant Glover. I'm one of the leaders here at Off the Clock. Tonight, we're uh, not doing a story because we're back. I'm, I'm back to backing this one. So if you were here last week, uh, I preached on a very difficult passage in First Peter, which uh, had to deal with the topic of slavery. And now I get to deal with the topic this week of wives submitting to husbands. Back-to-back weeks, for Peter really did me in 2,000 years ago. So the question is, all right, well, why are we bothering walking through these passages? You know, it, wouldn't it be just more convenient for us to skip around the things that are more relevant? And the answer, the reason why we're doing it is because we really do believe that the Bible, God's Word, actually does have relevance to modern-day life and that a lot of times the church does not want to get into difficult issues or the church will oversimplify not intentionally, but we'll oversimplify difficult issues. And we want this to be a place where questions are welcome, where uh, different thoughts and opinions are welcome, and where we're able to try to dig in and see what's actually going on in the context of the passage and work through that. That way it gives you the opportunity to dig deeper, ask the questions that are on your mind, and hopefully have a more fleshed out view of what's going on in Scripture. Now that being said... And if you weren't aware, I did get engaged, uh, what, a month and a half ago now? When was it, two months? It's almost two months? It's almost two months. Yeah, give it up. There, yeah, a couple months. So, uh, what, so it's funny, you know, preaching on a passage of, like, wives submitting to husbands with Evie right there. But what, what I'm going to say tonight, so what I wanted to say, I haven't got a chance to say this till now because it hasn't been relevant, but in Christian circles... Uh, it seems like whenever pastor figures or whoever get engaged or get married, that's like all they talk about. And like, they make the biggest deal out of like wedding stuff and like, Oh, now life is complete. Oh, my life's the best now. And life is great. But the thing, the point is, is that in Christian circles, what we tend to do is idolize marriage to make it like people pretend like your wedding day is like the best day of your life. And I sure hope that's not true because I hope the last like 50 years of your life are not downhill from that. But, so what we want to communicate, you know, Evie and I have, you know, tried to do our best is that, like, getting engaged, getting married is good. It will not fulfill all of your desires. It will not bring you all of the love and all of the things you're looking for in life. It is a good thing. It is a gift from God, but it is not the ultimate source of meaning in your life. And that's what... That's why you, you don't see, you know, me talking about it all the time. I just wanted to say that because I feel like in a room of people who probably, is anybody else engaged or married? Yeah, okay, exactly. What I, what, I'm, what I don't want to get up here and say is be like, oh, I've made it and all of you haven't. What I'm telling you is what you're looking for in life will not be fulfilled by getting married or getting engaged or whatever. What, it can only be found in Jesus. That's it. And we want, I want to make sure that message is clear. And as we get into this topic, Evie and I have you know, discussed these kind of things at length. And I think everything I say we're mostly in agreement on. And if not, I'll find out afterwards. So that being said, we're going to get into this text tonight. And I don't have a video clip. We're just going to get right into it. And I want to set this up and frame it in such a way where this is a hard passage to deal with, especially because I'm a dude talking about a passage that is more difficult if you're a female reading it. But I will do my best to try to represent it fairly and you could be the judge of whether I, am, I succeed or not. And so with that being said, I'm going to read First Peter tonight. And we will find some good news in it, I promise. And so I'm going to read the passage and we're going to jump right into it. So here we go. First Peter 3, 1-7. through 7. 
Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Got my ta- I've got a nice little task ahead of me tonight, don't I? Let's get into it. I recently was at dinner with some funny people and who are at least somewhat in tune with current meme trends on TikTok and whatnot. I'm really not, but I try to be as best I can through others. I outsource that. And we were talking about, has anyone heard about the Sigma male trend, uh, Sigma grind set, raise of hands? And how, how many are familiar? Okay, good. This is education time. So for those, for many of the room who don't know what this is, there's this new trend on TikTok that's honestly kind of hard to describe, but it's basically talking about guys being Sigma males, which is... Essentially saying I'm not an alpha male, I'm something greater than that. Like S tier, you know, if you've seen like the rankings lists, like I'm a sigma male. And what that means is actually really hard to describe as we were at this dinner having this conversation. Some of them were sitting right there. We were trying to flesh out what, what exactly it means to be a sigma male. And basically the best I can describe it is that sigma males are guys who are stoic. Right, think like uh, John Wick. Great example. Sig- would, you, would you agree, Sigma male? Probably, Blake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're good. Yeah, you're getting called out. I gotta say, John Wick's a Sigma male. Yeah, I'd say he's a Sigma male. So they're stoic. They don't speak. And the what I read today from Vox was the reason they don't speak is because they know they are one step above the alphas, and they can, they are Sigmas because they don't play the social game but still win. I, I don't know how, but that's how, that's how it works. And they are, are apparently, alpha males do not like the sigma males because sigma males choose their own path. They do not conform to society. And they can infuriate an alpha male simply by, simply by not even acknowledging the alpha's presence and just smiling at them in a social function. Because sigmas are dominant even though they don't even try to play the game. That's what they do. Sigma males are also often said to be at the top of the social hierarchy, even though they are not in the hierarchy by their own choice. If you're not confused yet, then maybe you're more into it than I am. But basically, that's what this whole trend is about, is this Sigma grind set. These guys, investment, Wall Street guys, actors, whatever, being above alpha males. And the reason I bring up the idea of a Sigma male or an alpha male is because when a lot of people hear things said in common Christian circles, they think that the Bible promotes a stereotype where being some type of alpha male is a good thing and a better thing than, uh, you know, taking on more feminine characteristics, especially when they see a passage like this. And, you know, again, we just took a poll. No one in here is married. So you're like, well, how is this going to apply to me? And look, as a side note, 
Q2 is closing soon here at Off the Clock, and we are falling way behind Off the Couples. I need more dates. I need more dating. I need more relationships to happen. Don't be creepy, but I do need those numbers up so I can report back to my superiors. Anyway, we live in a cultural moment. We live in a cultural moment where the Bible seems really regressive when it comes to genders. And there's lots of debates and lots of things circling around social media about it. And there are plenty of stories. This is only exacerbated by the stories coming out of churches uh, of abuse towards women. That there's lots of these stories coming out now. It seems like there's more and more every month. And Christians seem to have been the slowest to support the equality of women when you look through the last hundred years. And all this is confusing. And so as we take a deep dive into this text tonight, you know, we're not really looking at it from the lens of marriage, right? Because that's maybe not so as applicable to you. But we're looking at it in a lens of what, we are, what does the Bible have to say about gender roles, gender in general? And as we start, I want to start off by saying that there is a broad spectrum of what Christians believe about this issue. There is not a one-sided view. There is not one main view that all Christians must hold about this. And let me explain. There are essentially two views about gender roles in Christianity. Egalitarianism and complementarianism. If you've never heard those words, don't worry about it. The concepts are fairly simple. Egalitarianism is... People who say that men and women have the same roles in the home and in church. Same roles. They, no one's the leader. No one's the follower. They're, they're of equal roles in the home and in church. Complementarianism is the opposite, which is that men and women have different roles in home and in church. They complement each other. Okay? There's a, and there's a whole host of views in between the two that people fall into. So what I'm saying is you can be a very intelligent Christian and be either one of those things. There are very smart Christians who, who side with either one of those views of gender roles. And I'll present my understanding tonight, but you're not tied to it. And I am sensitive to the other side because this is not an issue that's worth like, you know, you pick certain things you die on a hill for. This is not one of them. And my mind can be changed on this issue whenever I'm presented with an argument that is that I find really compelling. All that to say, the big question, what does the Bible have to say about genders, and how does that even apply to you? And what we're, we're going to find it in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and we're going to see three things. The first, the uncomfortable command, fairly obvious. And then second, the true beauty. And third, the mutual call. Three things we're going to look at tonight in this passage. So first... Let's look at the uncomfortable command, because we start off with an instruction Peter gives that many of you find very difficult to read and believe and come to grips with, because perhaps it might make your skin crawl. And let me just stop for a moment and say at this point, like some of you have had experiences in the workplace and families uh, in college or whatever, where you have, where there have been men who have taken advantage of situations. And that's something I'll never understand. Like I'll never understand what it's like to, you know, have to be walking late at night and have to, like, call your friend because you're scared of, like, the guys around you in parking lots. Like, I'll never understand what that's like. And so there are a whole host of issues that I'll never be able to empathize with. But just know that if you are uncomfortable when you first read that, I completely understand. But there is a context, there is something deeper going on than perhaps what you've heard in culture. 
And I want to flesh that out in full tonight, if that makes sense. And so what I want to show you is that there, are de- there is a decent amount of goodness and progressive ethics in it when you take a deep dive into it. So let's do that. Because what you probably aren't aware of is that, uh, in, that because you don't get into Greco-Roman history in your free time and you're probably in shape and have normal hobbies, what you may not know is that the phrase, wives be subject to your own husbands, would have actually come as a comfort to many of Peter's listeners. And you're like, now how's that? Well, that's because there were two types of marriages back in Rome. And you probably have never heard this, but there were two types of marriages back in Rome. They were called cum manu and sine manu. That's Latin. Ignore it. doesn't matter. Principles are simple. A cum manu marriage is what we experience today where a woman leaves her household of origin and goes and marries her husband and then they form a new family unit. And she's only responsible to, you know, her husband's wishes and not her father's wishes. Sine Manu, though, was completely different, and it was a marriage where the wife was responsible not only to her husband, but also to her father's wishes. That she was actually still under the authority of her father, and what would happen is that fathers who demanded this kind of marriage would oftentimes be not abusive, but very authoritative and actually restrict and limit the freedoms of their daughters to do certain things because they still wanted control over her and they would withhold a lot of things from her that a normal father would. So she's having two people that she's having to try and balance and go between. Like she's still under the authority of her dad and yet she's supposed to be a responsible wife to her husband at the same time. And what's even stranger is that they were stuck in this principle of family honor. And again, Rome was an honor-shame culture, so honor was very important. And so in this type of marriage, they had to look out for and make the highest priority their family of origin's honor, which led to them being having very complicated marriages and very complicated lives and very complicated experiences in motherhood. And so what's even stranger is that this was the this ended up by the time Peter was writing being a very popular if not the dominant type of marriage in existence. So Peter's listeners would have been would have been dealing with a culture that was having marriage be both under the authority of father and then being responsible to husband. And so believe it or not this simple statement of you are only to look out for your husband's interests would have come as a relief. That the Christian view always was, always has been, the biblical view from the very beginning in Genesis, is that a man and a woman leave their households, cling together, and become one. You are no longer responsible, and your parents do not have control or authority over you for your entire lives. You're to honor them, but there's no control. And that actually would have come as a relief. But beyond that, there's something else going on here. In all ancient societies, there were these things called household codes, This is an example of one, which is basically these philosophers would say how people are to behave in the home. And Greco-Roman philosophers said, would say, wives, obey your husbands to any degree, whatever he says. And he's allowed to cheat on you, by the way, and that's not a problem. That was the Greco-Roman view. And the question is, why did the Greco-Roman philosophers say that? Well, their rationale was, you have less value. 
Because the gods created you with less value and less honor, you must obey your husband because you are less than. And so Peter says something radically different here. While Greco-Roman philosophers and the, the culture he lived in was constantly putting down women in that kind of way, Peter gives a different reason. He says, wives be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. He doesn't say do it because you're less or you're inferior. He says be subject or submit so that you might see your husbands come to know Christ. That's the reason Peter gives here. And what you have to understand of why this was so important was that in the earliest days of Christianity, it was typically the people at the very bottom of society, the lowest rungs, who became believers first. That's why Jesus says, like, I have come to preach good news to the poor. And that oftentimes included literally the economic poor, slaves and women, And Peter is then saying your role in the household, your role at home, has a greater purpose. It's not what the culture is telling you. You have a purpose, you have a mission that you're embarking on Jesus with that is of eternal significance. And there were apparently a bunch of men in these communities, a lot of husbands, who were not believers. And so Peter is encouraging the women, the wives, to be cultural influencers by loving their husbands well, to point them ultimately to God. They have a mission and a purpose. Now, even with me saying all that, this is still a very difficult passage because there seems to be given a a role given to women that's not given to men. There seems to be two distinct things going on here. But again, let me take this moment to remind you there is a spectrum of beliefs about this in Christianity amongst Orthodox Christians who hold to the Bible and hold to the authority of Scripture and all of that. Because some believe that when Peter says this, it's a cultural statement, that he was just only saying this for the culture at that time, and the whole being subject thing no longer applies. That would be the egalitarian view. Uh, On the other hand, some think this is a universal principle for all time, that this is how the household should work, in all societies, in all cultures. And Peter's calling wives to, um, that we're, really he's calling men to be the leaders of the household. Household That's complementarianism. Very smart Christians believe both things. And very smart Christians fall somewhere in between the two as well. So remember that this is not, this is not a one-sided issue. And on the other hand, um, no matter where you fall, here's what Peter is not saying. No matter where you fall on this, the command by Peter only applies to the household. And this is an important point to make. We have to pause right here. What he's saying only applies to the home. He's talking about families. He's talking about marriages. He is not talking about the workplace or culture. He's saying neither of these things because there are many famous theologians, some of you who you might recognize, who will seriously say things like women should not be police officers, CEOs, bosses, serve in the military, or be politicians. Those are only for men. And there are conservative, uber-conservative fundamentalist Christians who say that, and they frankly drive me crazy. But rather than me getting on a soapbox and critiquing them, what I thought would be better is I would decide to quote the words of the queen herself. No, not Taylor Swift. Kathy Keller. And if you've been in the awful clock long enough, that is Tim Keller's wife. Kathy Keller is a queen and deserves to be quoted more because she also graduated from seminary with Tim 
and actually made just as good as grades as Tim did. And funny enough, and she being a very good theologian, she writes about this passage and things like it. And she goes all the way back to Genesis where God says, it says God creates men and women in his own image and tells both of them to have dominion and to exercise authority over the earth. Here's what Kathy says. She starts off by saying every human culture has found a way to interpret male authority in a way that has marginalized and oppressed women. Facts. That has happened across every culture. But she goes on to say both are equally made in the image of God, equally blessed, and equally given dominion, dominion over the earth. This means that men and women together, in full participation, must carry out God's mandate to build civilization and culture. Both men and women are called to do science and art to build families and human communities. Slay, Kathy. <laughs> do, you see the, do you hear her point? What she's saying? Because... It, the, what Peter is talking about is applying to husbands and wives. We are not talking about the workplace. We are not talking about culture. And so if you have felt put down by men, for, my, for women in the room, if you have felt put down by men, either in school, in the culture, in workplace, this is not a biblical worldview, and the people who are espousing that are acting more like pagans than Christians. And I mean that literally because that's what the Greco-Roman people believed. That's never what Christians believed. Jesus was in the business of elevating women to actually sit and learn at his feet and be taught in a time where only men were allowed to be educated. And so this is the worldview. Is, this is only talking about what's going on in the home. Now, while that's a relief, that doesn't really solve the whole tension. And I understand that. And the question is, how does this stuff work itself out in marriage? How does it protect against abuse of authority and all sorts of a host of other issues. But I'm going to let that tension sit for a little bit because I tend to go long. And to keep you engaged, I have to let that question linger in your head for a while. And I'm going to take a quick detour and answer a different question. And I want to ask a different question really than answer it. Because with all of this complication, all these rules and roles and stuff you see in Bible and all the things about gender, is the Bible good news for women at all? That question was first posed to me by actually a female professor at the school I went to in Chicago. And she asked the question, is it good news for women at all? And her conclusion was yes. And that's what we're going to get into the second point. Oh, I quoted Kathy. Take a picture if you'd like. Snap if you want. Here's the thing. Second point, true beauty, that the Bible actually is good news for women. And this also will apply to men. This point will apply to men because it's the same good news for them as the good news for us. This will apply to everybody here. Stick with me. Hear this, hear this one out. <laughs> Thank you, Henry. Henry Combs just airdropped me a picture of Taylor Swift. Also slay. Anyway, so hang in there with me. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that because now you're all going to start airdropping me. I will turn off my notifications. All right, so let's look carefully at Peter's next statements and uh, so we can see the goodness hidden in it together. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Okay, so your first thought when you read that, you might think that this is talking about, a, this is a modesty culture thing, that you literally can't wear fun clothes, makeup, or jewelry. And maybe you've heard that in churches before. And the truth is, that's how a lot of religious circles in America have taken this passage in the past. And because how many times have you heard a pastor, an influencer, or even a podcaster say something like how you're being ungodly if you're being immodest. And th what's immodest to some people is there's a wide range of what people call that. 
And what I'd like to quickly point out is that this is a Christian culture thing, not a Bible thing. Peter is not getting into that here. Because you can see the absurdities of how far this thinking goes. When you look at some of the crazy Christian universities like Bob Jones University. Has anybody heard of Bob Jones University? It's a wild place. I think it's in Florida, which would make sense, but I'm not sure. It's somewhere in the south. I don't know. And you may not have heard of it, but it has the funniest handbook written for students I've ever read in my life. And I went through it today, and I found a few of these, and I'd like to read them to you. Uh, here's what they said. On, on and off campus, there is to be no physical contact between unmarried men and women. In parentheses, side hugs are permitted for photographs. Thank God. <laughs> Maybe that rule needs, to, rule needs to be instituted off the clock. I'm not sure. Second, but here's another one. Women must wear a neckline that is no lower than four fingers width below the collarbone. And in my office, I was, like, trying to figure out, like, what that even is. Like, I really don't know, like, what, what's technically my collarbone? Is it, like, the pointy thing here? I'm not sure. But that's a rule. Not only that, hair color must be absolutely natural with no modification. Yeah, them roots are staying dark at Bob Jones University. <laughs> See, only the girls laughed at that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like you can't modify your hair color at all. And its length must be between off the collar and the ears. So I guess that's here? Is this the collar? Is, it, is, that, where, is that where? Am I reading that right? I don't know. Blake, legal counsel, we'll talk later about what the handbook's trying to say. But then lastly, the funniest one I read, I fell out of my chair when I read this. This is about men. Men are forbidden from wearing Abercrombie and Fitch clothing. <laughs> including anything manufactured by its subsidiary, Hollister. <laughs> I don't know what they did to Bob Jones, but it must have been bad. So anyway, you see the, these kind of things a lot in Christian culture, these kind of absurdities, things of, of modesty. And Edward Clowney, who is a theologian, makes this point. He says, the point of what Peter's saying is not a legalistic ban on the beauty of attire. Because he says, and he, brings, and he makes a good point, Talks about the, the parable of the prodigal son, and he says, when the prodigal son returns home, he is welcomed with a fancy robe and a ring to be put on. So clearly God is not anti this idea of being ornate. The, the priests in the Old Testament had jewelry to wear. They had specific clothing that was expensive to make. That's not the point here. Christians love to make rules because rules are easier to follow than ethical principles. It's a lot easier to make a list of things and check them off than to have an ethical thing principle to guide you. What Peter was doing was not using this as a rule, but actually as an encouragement, because you have to understand back then how women were, were uh, viewed. Because in ancient times, women's highest, and some of this translates to today, but in ancient times, women's highest value in society was producing heirs. That was what brought them a sense of self-worth. Declined again. Another airdrop. Their, their, their sense of self-worth was the only way they could have achieve family honor and carry that on to their children and to their sons, especially in having sons to carry on that family honor. So women's highest aspirations were to get married. Their highest aspirations were to get married to a man of high honor and produce an heir for him and be seen as a viable person, wife, and mother because of that. And essentially, women back then were just viewed as glorified baby factories. That's just what they were. That was their value. 
there was no economy for them to participate in. There, were, there was no culture for them to participate in. That was it. And Peter is saying here, that's not your value. Your value is not there. That is not where you find your sense of self-worth. There is something greater than that. And this is important for everyone because this was radical stuff at the time, and it's still radical today. Christianity and the gospel is one of the only worldviews that provides the most value to a single individual. That singleness is actually just as valuable as marriage. Because in other worldviews, your worth comes from the people on earth who love you. If you don't have people who love you on this earth, what is your worth and what is your value? And so if you feel like you're loved, then you feel like you have status. But the gospel comes along and says, oh no, your worth is not in what people think about you. Nor do you have a, you actually have a value more permanent than that. Because Jesus Christ, being God himself, died for you and considered you more precious than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. And he says, I'm never giving up that love for you forever. And do you see, if that's true, what that means? That means freedom. Real, true freedom. You can have a full, wonderful, and valuable life regardless of what relationship you're in or what people think about you. It could be independent of people's opinions of you and your relationships. The gospel is good news to women and to all because, it, first of all, it says that, women, your value is actually not in who you marry, what kids you have, and what society says about you. It's in what God says about you. And God says you're worth dying and giving up my very, his very drops of blood for. That's what, that's what Christianity has to say. Your worth is not found in you being a spouse or having kids. And so, that doesn't mean you don't do it, but it just means you're free. You're free from the burden and the pressure of having to do that to find a sense of worth. And so are you too, guys. You're also free from that pressure. You're free from having to meet cultural expectations for when you ought to date, how many dates you ought to go on, when you ought to get married, what job you ought to have, all of those things. Your worth is independent and outside of your appearance because of what God has said about you. That's true beauty. The true beauty is that what the gospel says is that Jesus Christ's record, what he did, becomes yours. And that all the things you've done that are flawed and messed up are taken away from you, and all that is now seen on you by the creator of the universe is beauty. And no matter what anybody says about you. But the beauty even goes deeper than that. Look at verse 4. He says, don't let your, so he says, don't, you don't have to find your worth anymore in your outward appearance. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, a cursory reading of this, a quick reading of this passage, you may think he's telling women to not use their voices and to stay silent or whatever. That's not what he's saying. Because it's talking about character. Because this phrase, gentle and quiet, here is reminiscent of another very famous Bible passage that describes another person's character. The words of Jesus Christ. I am gentle and lowly in heart. I want you to notice something. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with a gentle and quiet spirit. I am gentle and lowly in heart. What Peter is saying is that the inward character is what matters. The character of the heart. 
And what happens when you get in a relationship with God is that God actually indwells you via the Holy Spirit and you begin to change. Your beauty has nothing to do with what people think about you. And so what that means is if, you, if you, your value is not based on how you look in the world's eyes, you do not have to, you no longer have to put yourself out there to get that constant validation. And Jesus being the son of God knew who he was and did not need to be noticed, did not need to be seen as lovely because he was gentle and lowly in heart. That's who he was, servant of all. And my friends, I hope you hear this. This is where this applies to everybody. If you have, if you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you believe he really is who he says he is and he is, what is good enough for you, you are free now. Because real talk, I follow a lot of you on Instagram, and I see a lot of people who are seeking desperately to be noticed. And I understand that, because there's cultural pressure of you, people want, you want to be seen. You want to be known. You want to be loved. I see that. And I also see a lot of people out and about in Dallas, the way people go about their social functions and their dating and whatnot. And I see a lot of people who are really, 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 really wanting for somebody to notice them. And I understand that. And maybe you feel like you're not noticed in the room tonight. God notices you. And you know that because he came and died. That's the whole point of why Jesus did it, was to prove that he sees you. He does not ignore you. And again, there is nothing in scripture about not dressing fun or not posting fun things on social media or not going out and having fun. But my friends, do not try and find your worth in it. That game is not worth playing. Because no matter what people think about you, no matter what approval you'll get, you're just waiting for the next person to like you more. You're just waiting for the next thing. And don't, so don't keep, don't try and throw yourself out there before the court of public opinion to feel good about yourself, and you'll have to do that game over and over and over again. Do not let that guy or that girl keep dragging you along. I know that's prevalent to a lot of people in here, making you act a certain way, dress a certain way, all in the hopes of them finally accepting you. You do not want to spend the rest of your life making yourself a slave to other people's opinions because that is a sad life to live. That's a hard life to live. There's pressure always. And in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, there is freedom from that, where no longer do you have to work for people to like you. You can know that you have the unconditional love of God no matter what you do, forever. That is the true beauty that lies out there. Not putting ourselves out there, but what God has done to look at you and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you I am well pleased. That is what he says. Now, if that's true, and this is good news for women, We've still got to deal with the gender roles thing. I left the tension there. Now we need to come back to it. This will be our last point. I'll answer our question, wrap this up. And we've got to talk about the gender roles in this passage. And we're going to talk about the mutual call. Because this last verse is really tricky. There's a bit to unpack. I'm almost done, though. And, what it sa- and you have to understand what it says in the context of the whole passage. And you'll get a clearer ethic of what Peter is arguing for between men and women. So... Here, Peter gives into the commands of, for husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. All right, this is the tough one, okay? It's fairly obvious why. So let's deal with the tough part right up front because it's not what you think it's saying. 
Because this idea of the weaker vessel is probably the phrase that bothers you the most from this passage, I would imagine. And which makes total sense. But Peter is not suggesting that women are inferior emotionally or spiritually. He is not supposing that they are inferior because that is what the Greeks taught. The Greco-Roman worldview of the pagans was that women were just not as intelligent, not as moral as men, therefore men should lead everything. Remember, Peter goes back, believes in Genesis, goes back always to the Old Testament to say that both men and women exercise dominion over creation. And the key to understand what he's really saying about this whole weaker vessel thing is to understand the analogy of Abraham and Sarah, that weird little bit in the middle where he's talking about Abraham and Sarah. Because if you remember that Bible story, I don't think I have a slide of that, do I? No. If you, if you remember that Bible story, Sarah basically is told by God that she's going to have a kid when she's 90 years old, even though she hasn't had one. And both Abraham and Sarah are incredibly skeptical of this. And here's how this connects. The reason he brings this up is this actually connects to this verse because the word for vessel there is the same Greek word as instrument. So like in Acts, Paul is called God's chosen instrument to share the gospel to the whole world. So an instrument is something through which something is done. And so what Peter is highlighting here when he's saying weaker vessel is, in, is the idea that, about women's frailty in a reproductive sense. Why he brings up Sarah and Abraham? Because women are not able to reproduce as long as men can. Right? That's just true biologically. That men are able to reproduce longer and later in life than women are able to. And so, remember, in an honor-shame culture, that's a big deal. Because if you don't have a son or daughter, you are considered valueless. And so this is what, and so what, that's why he's saying, show honor to them as the weaker vessel. And I'll get into the radical nature of the honor thing in a second. But also in general, what he's highlighting is this idea that women are biologically weaker. Now, pause. This is not a comment on military, women's sports. We're not saying any of that. What I want to highlight is that this was written in like the hundred, the zero to hundred AD and back then, life was brutal. Like, people, like, if, you, if just a random group of soldiers decided to come into a random part of the city and just ransack it, they could. And so, what ends up happening is that women were some of the most vulnerable members of society back then because everything was settled by hand-to-hand combat in a lot of ways. Though the Romans were good at politics, if you read Roman history at all, it's violent and brutal. And so, what is, and so the question is, how are the husbands, given those facts, how are husbands ought to treat them? The key, likewise. Likewise to who? You have to look backwards, because Peter also, if you remember from verse 1, said, likewise, women do blah, blah, blah. But what's that pointing back to? Likewise to who? 1 Peter 2.22. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. What he's saying is that husbands are to, were to treat their wives like Jesus would, serving them. All the way to the point of death. If it meant death, it meant death, because that is what Jesus did for us. That's what he's saying. That's the type of service they're supposed to do. 
And so when he's saying to live with your wives, that's a merit, that's marital language in an understanding way, in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of what Jesus has done, and showing honor to them would have been a radical statement because back then, no Greco-Roman pagan would say, show honor to women, because their whole thing was men are the ones with honor. Warriors are the ones with honor. But Peter says, no, like Jesus Christ, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them, even given the fact that in culture they're not shown as much honor. It's just, that's why Jesus up, always uplifts the people at the bottom. It's the people at the bottom that he uplifts. And so what you see here is this is the mutual call I'm talking about. This is the mutuality of it. That there is a call for both people to serve the other. And that's how the home should work. Now, that being said, this is where we land and I show my cards a little bit. That I think when I read passages like this, there are so many that are along similar lines, that it do, there does seem to be, while there's this mutual call to self-sacrifice and service, to putting someone else's needs above your own, there does seem to be slightly different roles in how that's played out in the household. At least from what I've un- read and understood from Scripture and what I've read in books outside Scripture, there seems to be different roles. Because there does seem to be some sort of difference in what the husband does in the house and what the wife does in the house. Again, in the house, not in the workplace or culture. In the house is what this is talking about. And the reason it's set up this way is because I would fall, you know, if we go to the egalitarian, complementarian scale, like I I lean towards the idea that we complement each other, that men and women in a relationship are complements and work together and have different roles. And... What this, and this has nothing to do, here's the thing, if you believe that or if you find that difficult to believe, this has nothing to do with cultural stereotypes because let's go back to Kathy Keller. Kathy says this. She says, should wives never work outside the home? Should wives never be scientists? Should husbands never wash clothes or clean the home? Should women take primary responsibility for daily child care while men oversee the finances? Traditionally minded people are tempted to nod yes to these questions until it is pointed out that nowhere does the Bible say such things. True. Because even though there seems to be different roles, all the stereotypes of what of all the specific things are cultural. And Kathy explains Christians cannot make a scriptural case for masculine and feminine stereotypes. Different individual personalities and different cultures will express gender distinction in somewhat different ways. Notice what she's saying. She's a complementarian. She does believe that they work together, that there is different roles. She believes that Tim is the leader of the household. That's what she believes. But what she's, not, but what she's clarifying is that this does not work itself out in women only cook and clean and take care of kids and men only work. She's like, no, that's a cultural thing. How that works itself out is different. And she even says what's masculine in one culture is feminine in another. There are cultural differences. The Bible does not lay out rules. It gives ethics. But again, it's a lot easier to follow rules and checklists, and that's why people give them. In other words, so even though it seems that generally husbands lead household and sacrificial service, and generally wives follow their lead in a healthy way, keyword healthy way, how that works itself out in particulars is different for different people. If you've heard a bunch of rules of what should or can and cannot happen, you've heard some bad Bible teachers. Specifics, you've heard from some people who 
may not have read enough. And again, many Christians would disagree. Again, there are very intelligent Christians who disagree with everything I'm saying. And that's okay. There's room for the debate on this, and I, my mind can so easily be changed on this just because if I hear a very compelling argument, this is not a hill I'm dying on. But the important point I have to keep emphasizing is this is restricted to the household. And the reason I don't think it's regressive or it's bad news is this, is because this follows the very nature of how the persons of the Trinity, of how God interacts with himself. Because Christianity teaches that though there is one God, he exists in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God. Father, Son different, Son, Spirit different, Spirit, Father different. Follow? Great. So, that's what the Bible, that's what basic theology teaches from Scripture. Each person is equally God, 100% God, but each person has different roles. Okay, follow this. When you look through Scripture, what you find is that Jesus submits himself to the Father. And voluntarily, out of love, he takes on the role of following the Father's lead, and he takes on the role of dying on the cross. The Father does not. There are different roles. Is Jesus of less value than the Father? No. Is he any less God than the Father? No. Is he not to be supremely worshipped for how he lived? It says that he is now glorified. He is the name above all names because of what he did. So the point is, is that this, there's a beauty here that modern people have a hard time with because of a lot of the problems that have existed in culture around this issue. But that people can have different roles in the exact same value. And it's not done in an abusive way. It's not done in a restrictive way. It's not done in a coercive way or authoritarian way. It's done in a loving way. And I want to end with more Kathy. She says, the quote here again. Yes, with God, the greatest is the one who is most sacrificial and most devoted to the good of the other. Jesus redefined authority, taking the toxicity of it away. Both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his sacrificial submission. So what she's, there's something beautiful about this. is this idea that when, when a husband and wife take on the role of Jesus with one another, even if the roles are different, both are sacrificial. Both are out of love. Both are honoring and valuing to the other, recognizing the other as equal. Now the, comp, now the specifics of how that, get, how that gets worked out is different for everybody. The question is, what's the application for you, right? Okay, again, no married people in here. I had to explain all that, though, so we can understand what the Bible is saying about gender roles. Application for you, find the beauty in how you were made. Because you, however you're made, wherever you come from, wherever you fall on the socioeconomic ladder or the social hierarchies of Dallas, you are considered wonderful by God. Everyone in here is of equal worth and value ought to be treated as such, and you ought to treat yourself as such. Because there's too many of you beating up on yourselves, thinking you're a failure, you're miserable, you're good for nothing, nobody's ever going to do blank for you, you're never going to date, you're never going to marry, you're never going to whatever. Stop it. 
You are of infinite value because God is infinitely good and he died for you. And that means you can look at yourself as having value too. Recognize that your main role in life is to find the goodness of God himself and to live out that kind of sacrificial love towards yourself and other people. Live loving yourself the way God does and sacrificially loving other people the way Jesus did. Ask hard questions. Dig deep into what scripture teaches. Read, study, get into it if you want. More Roman history, if you're like me. Do it all and take comfort in joining in the divine dance of God who lives in perfect community. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your day and for your word. Uh, Father, there are passages that are Hard to teach, hard to understand, and we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit to help guide us into understanding and deeper knowledge of your love. Father, my main prayer tonight is that we would all understand the depths of your love for us because that is what Paul prays in Ephesians, that we would all understand what is the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God that surpasses all knowledge, that we would all know that, that we would all be able to know how much you love us, and that that would change the way we see ourselves and that we know that we no longer need to seek the validation of others. In your name I pray. Amen.